All right. Well, let us prepare uh, uh, for worship today. And uh, the congregation will prepare for worship in silence, just seeking our hearts, looking to Christ uh, as we get ready for today's service. Amen. Amen. Let's have the congregation stand at this time for a reading from the Word. Behold, the reading of the living and the true Word of God. This is out of Psalm 99, 1-3. It states this, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Now we can sit or kneel for prayer of confession. We're going to recite this together. Merciful Lord, pardon all my sins of this day, week, year, all the sins of my life, sins of early, middle, and advanced years, of omission and commission, of morose, peevish, and angry tempers, of lip, life, and walk, of hard-heartedness, unbelief, presumption, pride, of unfaithfulness to the souls of men, of want of bold decision in the cause of Christ, of deficiency in outspoken zeal for His glory, of bringing dishonor upon Thy great name, of deception, injustice, untruthfulness in my dealings with others, of impurity in thought, word, and deed, of covetousness, which is idolatry, of substance unduly hoarded, improvidently squandered, remembered or forgotten. Good Lord, hear, and hearing, forgive. Amen. Now, church, you are now to pray to the living God for forgiveness of your sins as the Spirit reveals them to your heart both sins of commission and sins of omission. That means the sins that we have done and the things that we have left undone. Amen? So let's just uh, spend some silent time in prayer as uh, the Holy Spirit points those things out. Bring those to the foot of the cross and be cleansed. Now the congregation shall stand for the reading of the Word. And the scripture reading is from Psalm 51, 1 to 5. Behold, the reading of the living and the true word of God to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're going to worship in song now. If you could pull out your phones, we got, um, we got a more fuller version that I sent you guys. To God be the glory, great things He has done, so may be seated. I'm going to recite the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, 
begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. I'm going to pray for the exposition of God's word. Heavenly Father, I just think about your word that states um, wisdom, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, I just pray uh, that our hearts might be bent towards uh, fearing your name, O oh God, as your word is expounded, as uh, Ken is going to bring it today. And so we just pray uh, that we would have open ears to hear, um, but not just be hearers only, but be doers of your word, that we might hide your word in our heart, that we might be fed of your word. I think about your word that says also that it's like a water, it's like a rock, it's like fire, it's like a sword. Mm. God, we just thank you so much for your word and uh, how it corrects and also encourages, Lord. So we just pray that you'd be with Ken, and uh, we pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit upon him as he brings your word uh, in fear and trembling um, before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thank you. Oh, that's bright. I think I'm gonna, is it going that way? I'm going to shift a little bit. How's that? New places. It's it's nice nice spot we got here today. Praise God for, for his provisions there. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, um, I'd encourage you to grab them and follow along as we open the Word of God. Uh, this passage that I chose to preach on today in prayer and supplication of the Lord as He guides and directs our steps as we desire to be faithful with Him um, in word and deed. Uh, this passage, it, it fits well uh, with the current exposition of Ephesians 1 that Jesse is currently undertaking, and 
by the way, doing a phenomenal job with and a faithful job. Uh, We've been learning about and reinforcing the saving work of God, His elect people, uh, and that salvation is God's gift by grace. As we get into our text today, I want you to orient your minds toward the type of message that we are hearing. Today we are, we are talking about how God's covenant people respond to him in faith. How, how God's covenant people, his people, respond. As we get into our text, um, it's important to, to, to understand this uh, as opposed to what God does. While, while Ephesians does, as we are seeing thoroughly, outline how Christians live as new covenant people, we, we've been learning and hearing about how we become God's people. So it's how we are saved, what God does, and then what we do as a response to being God's people. And how is that? How do we become God's covenant people? It's Ephesians 1.4. We've heard it. We've been proclaiming it. We rest on that truth. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is God's work. He does that. We don't. The simple way to think through these things as I'm prepping us for our passage today is, is again, what does God do? And then, what do we do in response? It's really important. It's a really, really meaty passage and doctrinal area for us that we're expounding on. The, the works of unregenerate people earn them nothing but God's wrath and judgment. So understand that. Apart from God, what we do in our freedom is to incite God's wrath and judgment on us. That's all we're able to do in our rebellious hearts and our fallen nature. All people are guilty before God and can only be rescued by Him as those He chooses. The the works of His regenerate people are done through the Holy Spirit. Those He has chosen, I quote, before the foundation of the world. Anything good in us, anything and everything that is good in us is from God and of God. The context of Acts, the, the passage that we're going to be in, um, I'm going I'm to give you a, a little context of the first two chapters opening into this and kind of doing a, a quick explanation of, of the entirety of the book. The, the book opens by Luke, the author here, giving an account of the beginning of the work, the beginning of the work Jesus did either himself or by the Spirit in his newly established kingdom on earth. Jesus had restored God's kingdom over the earth and now called Israel to live under God's reign and to follow him. Jesus, as he witnessed, Luke witnessed, was enthroned 
as king when he gave up his life and conquered death. The promise that was spoken of in the opening of Acts was fulfilled. It was a fulfilled promise from the books of old, the prophets of old. We see it in Isaiah chapter 32 very clearly. Ezekiel chapter 36. And also in passages like Joel chapter 2. I would strongly encourage uh, researching and reading those later today as well. Very encouraging for the saints of today. The promise was one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets. That in this new kingdom, God's presence, His Spirit, would come and take up residence in and among His people in a new temple and give them new hearts. That was the promise. It was documented that Jesus was taken up in a cloud before witnesses, which was also spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, and then enthroned as the Son of Man, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Acts chapters 2 through 7 relate to Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 to Judea and Samaria, and then 13 through 28 to the rest of the nations, what we would refer to as the, the Gentiles. Something I've stressed before, and, and I will again today, is how important it is, at minimum, to understand who is speaking. Who is speaking or is being spoken to? And, and, and understanding that at minimum so that we could best apply the Scripture to ourselves. But that's after we understand its immediate context and meaning. Who's speaking? Who's being spoken to? Look at that. Understand that. And then ask, what does that have to do with me? Our passage today is nestled into the end of Acts chapter 2. So remember, Luke is documenting Peter speaking to men of Jerusalem. This account of the sermon, Peter gave, he's given a sermon at, to the men of Judea, and this is at Pentecost. Luke, at this point, is expounding on this newly established kingdom of God. The new covenant. God's new covenant people. And how Jewish people, who are heirs of the promise, are to respond to this gospel that had been spoken of by their prophets of old. So now let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of the word. And Peter said to them, repent. Repent. Peter here is addressing all who dwell in Jerusalem. He had just laid out a clear sermon before all of them. What they were witnessing at Pentecost is the Spirit descending upon the disciples as the men watched the disciples all speaking in their own languages. Peter quotes to them a prophecy from Joel about the future promise where the Spirit of God is poured out on Jews and Gentiles alike. Joel had prophesied the day of the Lord will come and then it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise God. As John the baptizer was warning, what did he say? Even now as the axe is laid to the root of the trees, so too here Peter is warning them of the imminence of the day of the Lord. Peter then quotes from David, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is the sermon he's preaching to the men before his eyes. So this promised seed of God came. It came according to the Scriptures. The religious men of Jerusalem murdered him. God raised him and made him king. And now this king sits, reigning on his throne, as God conquers the nations for him, beginning with the house of God, Israel. Enemies made a footstool. As the word of God should do, we read here, it cut to the heart of the hearers. Oh no, they say. Oh no, what do we do? What do we do with this? Repent. Repent. What is that? It's a change of mind. So he's saying, change your mind. It's the change of direction of one's life. These Jewish men, Peter is addressing, had just killed the Messiah. But not only that, it was God's plan that they did what they did to Jesus. You read that in verse 23. So they were accomplishing his will and ordered by God to repent. So Peter is instructing them 
to turn from their course of being an enemy of God, who they are rejecting by rejecting Jesus, to now change their mind and put their trust in him. And be baptized. Repent and be baptized. The men would clearly understand this instruction. This washing that is being appealed to here. The word, it means to be washed, purified, or the washing for purification. Israel, in their regular ordinances of worship and practice, would follow rules for washing cups, pots, copper bowls, and even beds. It's the last time you thought of baptizing a cup. They would understand the connection here. The practice that they have known well and been accustomed to, the culmination of the teaching and purpose of understanding cleanness and uncleanness, it's being applied to them now. Forget your cups. Forget your bowls. You need to be washed. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice, notice that the call to repentance and ritual washing was to everyone. All of you repent. All of you be baptized. We're going to talk about this more when we get to verse 39. So for now acknowledge that the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one, it exposes the holiness of God. We proclaim God's holiness. Two, it declares the person and work of Jesus Christ. Three, it reveals the sinfulness of man. And four, God commands all people everywhere to repent and submit to his rule. This is the, the gospel Peter is delivering to these men. This next part, stick with the text. This gets people confused. And not just with baptism, but as a whole. What is it? In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. You, you see movements throughout history today. And today. Baptize in Jesus' name only. The things. Like, we're, we're, we're different from you folks. We're only going to baptize in the name of Jesus. What about praying? 
praying every prayer with a sign-off. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name. Throughout Acts, we see people getting baptized in the name of Jesus. But did the apostles get it wrong? Didn't they hear Jesus' instruction? What did he say in Matthew 28? Verse 19, go, he's instructing his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Should we say a certain phrase when we baptize? What about when we pray? We pray for our meals, pray for the blessing. Are we instructed to say in Jesus' name, amen? This is one of the many reasons exegesis is important. Because if we just read passages of the Bible without critical and consistent interpretation of the text, it can be easy to misapply. If we claim there is some sort of power by what we say or do, you get into a lot of trouble when we hit the next part of the verse. What is it? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping in your mind you're thinking of a lot of different teachings that we see out in the world today. And it's one of the reasons that I prefaced today's sermon with understanding the accounts that we read of in Scripture. What does God do in relation to our salvation? What do we do in response to it. Does how someone repents or is baptized or prays, does what we do determine what God does or how He responds? Does one's action of being baptized save them? In Acts, we... We see people baptized before, during, and after receiving the Holy Spirit. So, so what's the correlation? And what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? That question answers those other questions. What does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? Let's start off with quoting a scripture Jesse, I think, is getting into this in the next couple weeks here. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to what? To the counsel of His will. To the counsel of His will. If you remember how I encourage this mindset today, i got to repeat it because this is critical. There is what God does. 
And there's how we respond to what God does. We don't alter, change, or influence what God has purposed. We don't do that. God's will is eternal and immutable. So we ask a question. If I baptize someone saying the words in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and I do that, does that do something different than if I said a simple prayer? Or nothing at all? No. No. It's according to the counsel of His will. Not mine, not yours. Well then, when will God answer my prayer? When will God save my friend? When do I receive the promised Holy Spirit? When? When do all these things? The place and time God has determined. If it is in accordance with His will. So when you pray for something or for someone, your first thought and desire ought to be, is this in accordance with God's will? Is this what he wants? If you believe so, then ask for it. Then pray for God to do it. When we baptize someone, does it save them? Does our washing someone or the apostles washing someone here in our text with water, does that save a soul from hell? Blasphemy. That is blasphemy. What we do in this life is work towards aligning ourselves, our lives, our prayers, our very desires to be like Jesus. To desire the plan and purpose of God's will. We pray that amongst our gathering. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Here on earth as it is in heaven. This alignment, this work that God does in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. This is this is sanctification. Make us like you, God. Make us desire the things you desire. We want to love as you love. This sanctification that God works out in us, there's a, there's a natural type of sanctification that, that has worked out through the tangible world. And then there's a supernatural work of sanctification that is worked out by the Holy Spirit. John 3.8 says, the wind blows, listen to this, the wind blows where it wishes. We can really relate to that this past week, right? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When we baptize, we strive to do it in accordance with God's will. 
And we baptize all those who are heirs according to the promise of God. Because it is those called according to the promise of God that are to receive the sign of the covenant. Now let's stay. Let's stay in the text. Who's Peter talking to again? Who's the immediate context, the immediate recipients of this message, this, this sermon that he is saying? The men of Jerusalem. The gospel hadn't gone out to the world yet. These are physical descendants of Abraham that are being addressed. They've been in covenant with God, or you could say they've been in a breaking covenant with God for generations upon generations. They are the ones on whom the end of the age has come. What age? The age of temples, sacrifices, worshiping God in a specific place through a certain people? How do they, these men, escape the prophesied judgment of national Israel? Now that Jesus has come to judge not just Israel, but the entire world, how ought they respond? Live in subjection to the risen King. Christ is enthroned. God is merciful and forgiving. And even as Peter was appealing to the very generation, that judgment has come. They can escape God's wrath by turning from their generations of hypocrisy, legalism, and defilement of God's word, and the murder of all the prophets that he had sent to them. This message of escape from God's wrath, which can also be uh, phrased as a message of God's rescuing a people from himself and for himself from before the beginning of time, this message, this promise, is for who? Who is it given to? Who is it prophesied for? The promise, as we read, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. That's good news. This promise is for you. So the promise is for you, you being, this is where we want to jump out real quick, right? Get back in. The promise is for you. Who's being spoken to? It's the men. The promise is for you, men. The men of Jerusalem, Israel, This isn't a new revelation. Paul lamented over Israel's overwhelming rejection of Jesus. 
we hear him quote, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. But it was Paul who revealed that it isn't according to the flesh. It's not according to the flesh that is who you were born to, but according to the promise. This promise. Do you see a slight dilemma that we have here when it comes to our practice in this life? To theirs in their day? It's a lot easier to determine a physical lineage. That's my dad. That's his grandpa. But, but if it, it wasn't according to the flesh, but the promise, who actually belongs to God? Which people are actual heirs of this promise? Our practical outworking of this is by observing who obeys Christ and who doesn't. That's it. We look and see the fruit. We don't know today who will actually undoubtedly be in glory in heaven with Jesus for all eternity until we get there. We just don't know. So today, the gospel that the Messiah has come and is judging the world is preached. Christ is King. Submit to His rule. Then the church of Jesus upholds His law on earth and functions in a way that should rightly determine who is inside and who is outside of this covenant or this promise, this communion with Christ. These men are being called out, called out of unbelieving Israel and called into God's true Israel, the church, God's one people. And for your children. And for your children. Men, you, and for your children. Whose children? Men. The men who Peter is preaching to. Do these Jewish men have an understanding of how they bring up their children in obedience to God? They sure do. They gave them the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and were to teach them daily throughout the entirety of the day. Morning, noon, tonight, how to observe the covenants of the Lord. Do they understand the ritual of cleansing, washing, as a sign and seal of things being done and cleaned before God? Of course they do. This is their life. This is their heritage. Now in this new covenant with God, mediated through Jesus, the same promise God has been working out with man from the beginning of the world, would they include or exclude their children, their household, from this covenant promise? Did they? 
is a better question. We have a lot of writing to and about this new and final age as it was transitioning from the old covenant into the new. In all that we have, there is not a single instance in the entire Bible that instructs a change in practice for raising their children in covenant with God. Not one. Now we do know that many in Old Covenant Israel failed to rightly understand the nature of the covenant sign of circumcision. Instead of trusting in the Christ to whom it pointed, they trusted in it as a badge of ethnic superiority. We're Jews. Abraham is my father. And just like there were false teachers in the early church teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation, the Judaizers, so today we have many false teachers claiming that water baptism is necessary for salvation. Misunderstanding the covenant sign of God is unfortunately done by both believers and unbelievers. There are faithful Christians who misunderstand the sign of the new covenant. We don't divide here over that. Though we do divide from those who teach that man's administration of this sign and seal of the new covenant, that that work of man is a saving work. We divide from that. That's false teaching. It's a gospel of works. And it damns people to hell. The actual saving work of baptism isn't in what we do. It's in what God does. And He chooses when He does it. He puts His Spirit and a new heart into His people. He prophesied, day is coming, I'm going to do it. He does it. He does it. He does it. We don't. That's what the true baptism is that God does supernaturally, which saves people in this new covenant work. People of old trusted in the future promise. We trust in the fulfilled promise. They looked forward. We looked what has come. The awesome part of this new covenant is that it isn't just for them and their children. It's also for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself, those who are far off. It's a phrase you'll see 
if you study this entire book and other parts of the Bible. Those who are far off, very simply, is referring to Gentiles. Those who are not Jews. It's for them too. This promise, Peter is declaring, goes far and wide. We see instances of this, like in chapter 11, when the conversion of the Gentiles was initiated by God. The angel of the Lord instructed to send for Peter, as, quote, from an angel, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your, all your household. Likewise, in chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what he must do to be saved. They told him, I quote, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. I want you to listen again to this prophecy in Joel 2. If you just take a minute to even flip there, if you know how to get there quickly, this is, this is j- just really impactful as we understand this new covenant. Joel 2, 2, 28-32, I'm going to read from. Fulfilled prophecies. The work of God in redeeming a people for Himself. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. And what? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Maybe I'll preach a sermon on that passage in a couple weeks. (laughs) Church, (laughs) the new covenant that we are in is about inclusion and exclusion. There is no neutral. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. 
And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The gospel message lavishly invites all people to Christ. Come and receive life and forgiveness and redemption. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The promised Messiah who came to save sinners. The people of God, as we proclaim this good news, they will come. They will come. Our job is to baptize the people, the families, and in, into the new covenant and to teach them obedience to the King. How ought we to live in the kingdom of God today with Christ ruling as King? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Your words in this life and throughout all eternity are the ones that matter. What You have declared from before the foundations of the world word, world, and into all eternity. We know that the proclamation of your word does not come back void. Lord, this message of redemption and hope, being saved from you and for you, as you are a holy God who pours out your judgment righteously, deservedly, on a rebellious creation. In mercy and grace and love, you saved people for yourself. We all deserve death. We all deserve your judgment. You proclaim a message of hope. Your word goes out and says, come back to me. Your word does a supernatural work, not ours. And we want to be messengers of that word and not ours. Lord, I pray as we speak the gospel, as we speak your hope, as we preach and proclaim, as we depart from the walls of the gathering, wherever we gather, wherever you would have us, that we be faithful to proclaim the kingship of Christ and your command for all to repent everywhere. May we be faithful, uncompromising in that message. Repent and be baptized. Jesus is King. Lord, we love you and we praise you for your salvation. 
your mercy on us. We should have received your, your judgment. And you, you clean us and make us holy and give us new hearts and a new spirit. And not only do you rescue us from our damnation and our destruction, but you make us heirs of everything that is yours. The love that you have is just really hard to comprehend for us. But open our minds to that more each day as we reflect on your glory. It's not us. It's you. It's about you. And that makes us whole. That gives us hope. The emptiness of this world would end on us. Our hope is in you and nothing else. May your name be exalted and glorified in this small city and out to the nations. And use our mouths to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now as we prepare for worship in offering, you're invited at this time to come and worship the Lord through cheerful giving as He has freely forgiven, as He has freely given to you. As you come to worship through giving, you are to give one joyfully and two generously. Scripture, uh, Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So let's rise for worship. And we'll sing holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Oh! 
the congregation may be seated. Communion with Christ at the Lord's table. A congregation can answer, I do or we will in response to uh, what is asked. Beloved people of God, when the Lord's Supper is being celebrated, our minds should be oriented on a particular truth to focus on. How shall we fix our eyes on Jesus during this time? We are about to receive more than a piece of bread and drink of wine. We need the blessing of the Lord Jesus Himself. Church, will you fix your eyes on Jesus as we sit to eat this meal with Him? We will. Paul refers to the cup that we are about to partake in as the cup of blessing. A blessing is a kind of prayer. A prayer to turn away a curse. So be blessed. When Jesus took the cup of blessing, He gave it to His disciples and said He would not drink of the fruit of the vine until He drank it anew in His Father's kingdom. The Lord did not Himself take the cup, but gave it to His disciples. Why? In the Gospels we read, when Jesus was about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, having said to His disciples, take and drink, His Father now pressed into His hands another cup and said, My Son, take and drink. That cup was ultimately the cup that was filled with the judgment curse of God against our sins. God did that for us in Jesus Christ. Christ took the curse to give us the blessing. Christ became a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham might not be only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And Jesus drank the cup of the divine wrath so that we could drink from the cup of divine blessing. Church, do you confess that Jesus became a curse for you to redeem you from the curse of the law? We do. Our Lord Jesus Christ now invites you to His table. The bread and wine represents the blood and body of Christ. Taking it is receiving and trusting in the, in the sovereign Son of God. In this ritual... Just as taking the Passover lamb, you expressed your share in the Exodus. So now, by, the taking, by taking the bread and the wine, you are expressing your share in the new Exodus that Jesus accomplished. You are now expressing your share in Christ. In the old Passover, you took the Exodus as your own. But now, in this supper, you are taking Christ as your own. Church, do you believe in Christ alone as the final propitiation for your sins to be received by faith? We do. The bread and wine are not just memorial and reflection. It is more a time of communion. Jesus offering Himself to us. Come to Him and find rest. 
Jesus invites us to come and commune with him, to love him, and partake with him in the new covenant. Jesus meets with us at the table. It is a marriage banquet where we receive him. As often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that there is more to come. We, all, we are already raised unto new life with Christ. But we are yet to be finally resurrected with him, which we will be when he comes. We meet Jesus at the table, and it brings us into the presence of Christ. Church, will you commit to live your life worthy of the gospel, one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? We will. Now, we are exhorted to examine ourselves before taking the bread and wine at the table. We are to test ourselves to see if the Lord Jesus is in us. The primary purpose of this examination is to assure ourselves that we belong to Christ. The simplest way we do this is by weighing the proclamation and exhortation of God's Word through our hearing and being able to measure the fruit of the Spirit in our lives by the doing of the Word. If through testing we carefully judge ourselves as both hearers and doers of the Word, we invite you to partake with us in this meal. I love you, Lord, and I my voice to worship you, oh my have the let's recite the Lord's Prayer together as a congregation from Matthew 6 9 to 13 our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The congregation can rise. Let's uh, part with the hymn and a benediction. Praise God from whom all
Romans 15, 5 to 6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.